Blessings to you all out there. You are listening to JOY, a podcast from St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. I am the Reverend Mary Vano, and in today's episode, I am going to be responding to some of the questions that I've received from our community over the past month or so. In our faith tradition, we love questions. And not because we think we have all the answers, but because when we ask questions and wrestle with them faithfully in a community, we tend to deepen our understanding and, even better, our relationship with God. My co-host today is the producer of our podcast, Heidi Soul. Heidi works in radio, and when I first had the idea to create this podcast, I asked Heidi to collaborate with me. She's done a terrific job editing the audio, adding music and silence in all the right places, and generally guiding me to make this a good podcast. She is also one of my most inquisitive parishioners, so I'm really grateful that she agreed to be my conversation partner today. Thank you, Mary. Thank you for having me. So we have a great list of questions all submitted by listeners to talk about today, and Heidi's going to help lead the discussion. So Heidi, what is our first question? In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul mentions the Godhead. Is that a real word in the Greek, and does it have any precedent for its use in church history? All right, we're going to dive right into the Greek. One of the reasons I like this format is that it gave me a chance to do my research, my homework, before diving right in. The Greek word used in Colossians 2 verse 9 is theotes, which is from the root theos. The common Greek usage of that word during that time would be a generic reference to the gods or deities. Among Jews and early Christians, this word would refer to the one true God, or it might be used to speak of the full nature of God. So the King James Version uses the word Godhead in three places, and all three of those places are a translation of that Greek root theos. Colossians 2.9 is special, I think, because in this letter, Paul is making the rather radical argument that God's full nature exists in and is revealed through Jesus Christ. The New Revised Standard Version of this verse states that for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So they have taken that word theotes and translated that the whole fullness of deity. The King James Version, it sounds like this, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. To me, the NRSV is a little more clear. But still, lots of us grew up hearing that word, the Godhead. Now, I will also add that later on, Christians will develop more fully the doctrine of the Trinity. And when that happens, the Godhead, that word will come to serve as a reference to the Trinity. I would say that we're seeing the beginning of that idea being expressed here in Colossians, but it's not quite there yet. Paul is simply and radically saying that in Jesus Christ, we can see the full nature of God. So my follow-up question, Mary, to this is, so there is no reference to the Trinity together. Like, of course, there are mentions of God and, of course, Jesus, and there are allusions to the Holy Spirit in the Bible, but there are no references of the Trinity as a unit together in the Bible. Or is there? 
Well, there are hints at it. I mean, the doctrine of Trinity doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of scripture, but it also comes out of the next couple of centuries after these New Testament writings are written. So what we find in scripture are references to God as Father, especially in the Gospel of John. The Father and I are one, so we get that kind of coexistence. We have references to the Spirit throughout. And even a couple of places where all three are mentioned together, but the idea that God exists as one in three persons is not a fully developed idea for a couple of centuries. It takes some time for us to figure it all out, (laughs) and we're still figuring it out. The next question, are dinosaurs mentioned in the Bible? That is interesting. That is a question that I don't think I've ever received before, so I like a new challenge. I did a little research. I will say that as far as I understand, the evidence that paleontologists have uncovered to date suggests that all the creatures that we would call dinosaurs were extinct by the time our biblical ancestors lived. However, there are a couple of curious animals that are referenced in scripture, and we don't really know what they are. Job 40 describes behemoth, which is described as this large, powerful herbivore, a grass eater. Now, some say this creature, as it is described as a hippopotamus, but that doesn't exactly match because the description in Job says that it has a tail like a cedar. Others say that the description sounds a lot like a diplodocus. But again, the paleontologists will tell you that Diplodocus was long extinct by the time that Job lived. The other curious creature in scripture is the Leviathan, which is also mentioned in Job and in Psalm 104 and in Isaiah. The biblical descriptions of Leviathan suggest that it lived in water, had armor-plated skin, and perhaps even breathed fire. Was this a dragon? (laughs) I don't know. We really don't know what this creature is or was. It could be something that existed then but is now extinct. It could also be that these biblical creatures are exaggerated or metaphorical. The point of these passages of scripture is not really to serve as a science textbook for us. Really, it is to extol the greatness of God who creates life and in forms that we cannot always understand or control or subdue. These passages are meant to evoke wonder and awe and respect and trust in God, our creator. So growing up in the Christian upbringing that I had as a little kid, I heard a theory that has always fascinated me, and it's the idea that dinosaurs existed up until the Great Flood. So like the Great Flood came and like washed all the dinosaurs away. But in my head, I'm just thinking about, well, if that happened, what did the Garden of Eden look like? Because you, you would have had like Adam and Eve and then like all of the different creatures and they're like, oh, wow, there's a giant triceratops. There's a, there's a stegosaurus. There's a T-Rex, you know, just, just hanging out with the lions and the lambs. It's an interesting visual to ponder. <laughs> it is an interesting visual. There's a limit to our knowledge. I think modern science has a lot to teach us. I also think the Bible has a lot to teach us. There's a shared wisdom that we can grow in. 
when we get to know God. To me, the Bible principally is there to teach us about who God is and who we are before God, and also about what the creation is. It is beloved, and that's kind of the point. discussion leads nicely into our next question. How does one reconcile critical thinking and logic with some of the scriptures which seem to be what we would otherwise regard as irrational or unbelievable were it not written in scripture? This is a great question and we could spend a whole class talking about how to read scripture. I've actually taught a whole series on how to understand the authority of scripture. The short answer that I will give you, though, is that most Episcopalians in our tradition don't take a strictly literal approach to Scripture, and for good reason. There are lots of parts of Scripture that were never intended by their authors to be literal. Jesus, for instance, loved to talk in hyperbole and parable. He wasn't really interested in giving, you know, straightforward (laughs) teachings. He liked to get people thinking. He liked to startle them sometimes and stretch them sometimes and make them really work to understand. The canon also includes poetry and song. So scripture really goes beyond the literal. And the point of that is to engage us more deeply And I think that a critical and faithful reading of scripture takes the time to consider what is intended by the author. Now, I do think that in many ways, reading scripture this way requires more effort. It's more difficult. You have to read more closely. You have to open up your imagination. And I think that's a good thing. We become lifelong learners from the scripture. It also means that we probably get the most from reading scripture when we read and discuss it with a trusted community. There's always more than one way to see and understand a passage. And I believe that the Spirit guides us very effectively when we are in conversation with one another. I say, you know, don't be afraid of applying critical thinking and logic. Don't be afraid of questioning what's there. Because when we open our minds and our imaginations, God will take us on a journey. And that is a good thing. It is a journey. It's not a destination. Our faith is not something where I have arrived. I know all of the information. There's nothing left for me to learn. And it's like, well, then you'll never grow. You just stay stagnant spiritually. And that might also translate to your physical well-being and your mental well-being. For example, when I started going to St. Margaret's Episcopal, when I was kind of church shopping, I was on my own faith journey. I was introduced to the concept that there were other books of the Bible, like the Apocrypha, and even going more controversially, the Gnostic Gospels. I was talking with some other people in my 9 a.m. Bible class, and I was like, the Apocrypha? What? (laughs) And they explained, and it blew my mind because I was like, wait, I thought it was just the Old and the New Testament, and that's it. And it opened the door. I ended up reading some of the Gnostic Gospels and all of the Apocrypha, and I think it's very interesting 
but it's for some reason it's not biblical canon. I know that there are different historical reasons for that. I don't have the knowledge on, but yeah, going back to spiritual faith and learning more and being open, it's a journey. It's not a destination. I love the end of the Gospel of John because the last verse of the Gospel of John says, there are also many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. There's lots to discover out there. The Bible helps us. It gives us a guide to keep us on course so that we know what is true. We also have a community that helps keep us on course, but we should never stop discovering and working at it. Another question, another one of our listeners refers to John chapter 4, when Jesus tells the woman at the well that, quote, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Then asks the same question that Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, quote, what is truth? Yes, what is truth? A technical definition of truth, of course, is simply that which is real or factual. But I think that the best answer to Pilate's question, which is in John 18, 38, is actually to go back to John 14, 6. I don't actually think that Pilate wanted an answer. I think he was cynical. (laughs) But if he had been paying attention earlier, (laughs) he would have heard Jesus say this to his disciples. I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus said, I am the truth. That is such an interesting idea to me because what it suggests is that maybe truth is less of a what and more of a who. And that would take me down the path of thinking that truth is perhaps relational and dynamic. And when we know and trust Jesus, I think we're probably then about as close as we're going to get to understanding the nature of all reality. To know the truth is to know Jesus, or we might say it the other way around, to know Jesus is to know truth. That leads nicely into our next question here. You've heard phrases like trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding or biblical verses, I should say, as well as similar phrases like rely on Jesus or let go and let God. How does one manifest those sayings into everyday routines and struggles? What does trusting in the Lord look like in the real world? You know, what you're talking about is discernment, I think. How do we know what God wishes for us, what God wills for us, and how do we follow that in a world where we face a lot of uncertainties? Let me go back to the previous answer just a little bit. I think that having faith is really about being in a loyal, loving relationship with God, our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer. Life will give us all sorts of choices and complicated challenges to work through. And in the midst of such struggles, we often need to learn to trust in God's goodness so that we don't just become paralyzed because sometimes we have to take a step forward into the dark. And if we can't trust in God's goodness, then we might not be able to do that. 
Or if we fail to look outside of ourselves in any way, we may misstep. We may choose a path that wasn't the best one for us. So trusting God and relying not on your own understanding does not mean, I don't think, that you shouldn't use your God-given intellect. In fact, you absolutely should because your mind, your ability to reason is a gift from God to be used as a tool. It also doesn't mean that you shouldn't seek wisdom from other people. I believe that God will often use the people around us to help us see something differently. The key, I think, for trusting God and relying on God is to seek God. Another way of saying that perhaps is to say that we should always keep our eye on love. You know, what is loving? Look for that. What is life-giving? Certainly try to avoid what is destructive. What might God be calling me to do for the benefit of others? So we may not always understand and truthfully may not always get it right. We will sometimes make mistakes, but as long as we are seeking God, then God will be found. This is not easy to do, but I think it relies on us trusting that God is good, trusting that God cares for us and wants the best for us and for our communities and being willing sometimes to take that next step, whatever that next step is in the direction of love. Another popular phrase that you see sometimes, and it's, what would Jesus do? If you really break that down, just, yeah, what would Jesus do in this situation that I'm in? And I think God is, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit is asking us in this life to choose love, choose peace, choose mercy, And I think if we make those choices, then that will help our relationship with God grow even more. Every time I wake up in the morning, I always remind myself, I'm like, Heidi, no matter what happens today, no matter what you're feeling today, no matter what the world tries to throw at you, choose love. And that's easier said than done. Again, it's a journey. It's not a destination. You know, I think it was probably 20, 25 years ago when the WWJD bracelets and t-shirts were everywhere. Like the kind that you see at a summer camp when you're in third grade and you're singing and dancing to guitar and all that. (laughs) That's right. I remember that because that was around the time that I was in seminary and one of my seminary professors hated that. said, the question is not what Jesus would do. The question is, what would Jesus have you do? I think his point was, God doesn't expect you to be Jesus. We have a Savior. God has provided us a Messiah, and he is not us. But we all live in our own particular location. We all have unique gifts and qualities, passions and skills to offer to the world. And so God really would like you to consider what would Jesus have you do? It's a little bit different question. The answer still is probably love. (laughs) Love, and that's probably as much as I can handle is to think about, you know, what is the next most loving thing I can do? We had a couple of questions. 
questions that seem to be related to each other. One listener asked, why does God the Father seem so judgmental in the Old Testament and Christ seems so forgiving in the New Testament? And another person wants to know, does the Old Testament still apply to us? Well, I think that our brushstrokes are probably overly large when we simply say that the God of the Old Testament is judgmental and the God of the New Testament is forgiving. The Old Testament actually frequently portrays God as compassionate and forgiving. You can read the Psalms or Isaiah, for instance. You could even look at the book of Genesis. And even when God expels Adam and Eve from the garden, at the same time, God makes garments for them and clothes them for the journey ahead. To me, that's pretty compassionate. Or if we look at the New Testament, we also have examples of Jesus sometimes getting angry, like when he overturned the tables of the money changers at the temple, or sometimes harsh, like when he challenged the Canaanite woman. So it's not quite as simple as it seems. And it's also true that while God inspired the scriptures to be written, they are authored by human beings. So the Bible gives us a written history of how people experienced and understood God to be working in their lives. And I would suggest that human beings over time have learned along the way and that we're still learning. It's not that God has changed, but that our understanding has changed. Our body of evidence about who God is has grown, and especially since we met Jesus. For Christians, Jesus reveals the heart and character of God more fully and more clearly than anything or anyone else. That's what Paul was saying back when we were talking earlier about Colossians 2.9, that Jesus reveals that heart and character of God. He reveals God's love to us fully. That's part of the way that we've grown in our perspective of God. So yes, we continue to read and apply the Hebrew Testament alongside the early Christian writings because there are lots of important truths contained in the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus gave us a different perspective of the law. Paul gave us a different perspective of that. But still, what would be the story of salvation without understanding how God continually sent the prophets to preach to the Israelites, to call them to return? The other thing is that the first century didn't happen in a vacuum. Jesus was a first century Jew. So the writings of the New Testament are a continuation of the story of faith that has been ongoing for thousands of years. So to leave out the Hebrew Testament would be ooh, to leave out a lot. <laughs> we really need all of the story. We need to also recognize that the story continues. God didn't stop working at the end of the book of Revelation. God is still working in the world. We're still growing and understanding who God is. My brain went to the idea of, imagine starting the Harry Potter series, but you're starting with the last book. <laughs> you're, you're like, you're <laughs> that would be terrible. No, you need to watch everything else. You need to get the full context. You need to get the full story so you can be invested in what the characters have to say. And going back to the Bible, you want to be invested in what God has to say. I love what you said about Jesus revealing the heart and the character of God. Jesus is God's son. And so it almost feels generational. I believe there's no doubt that God is revealed in many ways through many people, through many events throughout history. But in Jesus, 
we see that most clearly. And that allows us to recognize it better, recognize God better when we're experiencing God in the world. Another one of our listeners just wants to know, why was Thomas always showing up late for meetings? (laughs) That's a good one. Probably for the same reason that I sometimes welcome a small crowd of people to Sunday worship. But by the time we've sung the first hymn, I look up and the room is full. (laughs) It's a mystery. (laughs) It is true that according to the Gospel of John, Thomas was not there when the resurrected Jesus first appeared to the disciples. And I'm sure that Thomas did not love missing out on that experience. But I actually really love that the gospel tells us about this because the following week, Jesus appears to them again. And it seems to be like entirely for Thomas's benefit. He hasn't forgotten that Thomas needs to see this, that Thomas needs to put his hand in his side and feel the wounds of Christ. So if Jesus will come back for Thomas's sake, then that tells me he's not going to forget the rest of us latecomers either. I relate to Thomas in some times of doubting of the faith, but I will say I do not relate to Thomas in that he is always late. I am habitually early. If there is a function that starts at like 10 a.m. in the morning, I'll get there at like 9.40 and just end up having to sit in my car and just wait until it's like appropriate to go in. If there's early birds and then there's me, I do not relate to Thomas in this aspect. All kinds of people in the world and some of them work on different timetables. <laughs> yep. And Thomas was on his own. Uh-huh. <laughs> We're not going to have time to answer every question that was submitted today, but let's take one more. What do you want the Episcopal Church to be remembered by when we look back on this pandemic? Let me tell the story. A couple of years ago, my family had attended the General Convention of the Episcopal Church. Sometime after we had returned home, we went to go get some yogurt together. My husband was wearing a t-shirt that we had purchased at the convention, and the t-shirt had a quote from presiding bishop Michael Curry. It says, death does not have the last word. Hatred does not have the last word. Violence does not have the last word. Bigotry does not have the last word. Sin, evil do not have the last word. And the t-shirt doesn't say this, but I'd like to add, pandemic does not have the last word. And Bishop Curry finishes that thought by saying, the last word is God and God is love. I would like us to be known for this, that in the midst of pandemic and racism and economic downturn and human sin, we remembered to love because love is where the story leads. And Heidi, I think that you will remember the day that my husband wore that t-shirt into the yogurt shop because you were working there that day. And you asked Stephen about his shirt and we started a conversation and one thing led to another and we invited you to come and visit our church. And the rest, as they say, is history. And we have been so blessed by you. This is the kind of love that I hope that we'll be remembered for. During that time when I was working at Menchie's Frozen Yogurt, this was a couple of years ago, spring 2018, and that was the time where I started church shopping. I was looking around. I was deep in my faith journey. I was trying to figure out where I wanted to be. And in fact, St. Margaret's, I will say, was on my list of churches to visit. I just Mm -hmm. hadn't gone there yet. Oh, good. 
It was a Sunday afternoon and I was working the cash register and you and Stephen came in with your t-shirts on. And I saw it was St. Margaret's and I was like, oh, St. Margaret's, do y'all go there? And Stephen said, yeah. And I said, is the pastor any good? Is, is he any good? <laughs> and then you were like, oh, I'm the pastor. And I was like, oh no. You invited me and the rest is history. And I feel very blessed to be a part of the St. Margaret's community. And I will say that I do think that St. Margaret's and I think the Episcopal Church as a whole, I think that kind of love is what they will be remembered for. It's a powerful love. It's the love of Christ. As long as we share that, we're on the right path and we'll get through all this. So Heidi, let's do this again sometime. Yeah. I know that we've still got a few questions in our file that we didn't get to today. And listeners, if you will continue to send in your questions, we'll keep answering them. We'll do this again. And in fact, some of your questions, I just actually will turn into a whole episode. Like someone wanted to know about the problem of suffering in the world. If God is good, then why is there suffering? That is a big old question. So we're going to devote another podcast to that question. But if you have other questions, comments, ideas, send them in for me. This has been fun. And for today, I believe that our joy is complete. Please listen again soon because you are a part of our J-O-Y. is a production of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thanks to Stephen Bano, who composed and performed our theme music, and to Heidi Soule, our producer. Music